hate these moments. I'm hearing the dual voices now, you know. What about the money? What's money? Good morning, and welcome to episode 215 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller. I hope you had as, as good a weekend as the Astros and the Marlins, who both swept. The Astros have won five, five uh, in a row. No, I... Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't because they're playing in the major leagues. Yes. And I'm right. not. I mean, that it's just that the starting point is ridiculous. I had a, in fact, I I also had a much worse weekend than the than the Angels, mm. who were they actually weren't swept by the way. It's a four game wraparound oh, series. Okay. So uh, it's uh, it's wrong to say that the Angels got swept. It is correct to say that the Angels world burned to hell. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, which I guess you kind of want to talk about today. Somewhat. What do you want to talk about? I wanted to ask you about two players. Uh, okay. Well, you, you know, we didn't. We don't. We don't have to do a podcast for that, Ben. You could have just emailed me. <laughs> yeah. No one else would have gotten to hear it. Um, and I want to talk about uh, the so-called resource curse. So uh, why don't I start? Okay. All right. So I wrote a piece for ESPN, the magazine. Uh, the premise of which was if. The Angels are a smart team, and they're a rich team. Uh, why aren't they a winning team? And uh, incorporates the Dodgers as well, and looks at the question of whether it is, uh, I, well, I guess whether it's harder to win uh, with money now than it used to be. But um, the, the the pitch, or I guess the the nut graph, is that uh, there is an emergent resource curse in baseball, um, whereby there seems to be uh, very little advantage to having money. Um, and this showed up last year really primarily when the correlation between money and wins was the lowest it had been in the in any post-expansion year in history um, and really like a lot lower than, than the average. The average, I think, the correlation was somewhere in the somewhere between 0.4 and 0.5. Uh, last year, I think it was 0.19. Um, the average, the average team over the last 20 years, uh, that has been in the top half of payroll has won 85 games. And so then the average team in the bottom half has won 77, um, which is a good and real difference. Uh, last year, the average team in the, in the top half won 81.4. So almost no difference this year. Um, the correlation this year is stronger thanks to the Marlins and the Astros, who have played exactly as badly as as you would think with a $23 million payroll or whatever. Uh, but for the 28 teams that are kind of above the bare standard of Major League Baseball teams, the, those 28 teams, when I looked about maybe eight days ago, had no correlation. The correlation was 0.1 for between payroll and wins for the top 28 teams. And so... Um, you know, it's certainly possible that this is a glitch because this is what baseball does to us. They give us glitches um, and blips and those sorts of things. But um, I just wanted to know how full of it you think I am <laughs> for this idea of a resource curse. And should I explain what a resource curse uh, is? Yeah, I think so. So a resource curse uh, refers to this phenomenon where countries that are poor discover, say, oil or some natural resource that that gives them tons and tons and tons of money, and it actually uh, it should save their economy, and in fact, it seems to have the opposite effect. It makes their economy worse, it makes their economy grow slower, and generally leads to all sorts of negative things like civil war or um, 
dictatorship or graft or whatever. Um, so in fact, they also call it the paradox of plenty, uh, where so so basically discovering such money in your in your in your land can actually be a bad thing. Um, so that's sort of the idea is that the Angels and Dodgers announced these huge TV contracts, um, and seems like all should be right with the world, but um, yet we're seeing them both in last place right now, or I guess the Angels aren't in last place, but they're doing terrible. Yeah, uh, yeah I enjoyed the article, and I mean, my, my mind sort of rebels at the notion that money doesn't matter or, or doesn't matter much. Um, it just seems like such a such an ingrained thing that the teams that spend more should on the whole be be significantly better than the teams that don't uh i I mean i guess it's it's consistent with what baseball has tried to do um i I mean baseball has tried to promote parity and we've talked about some of the ways in which it has tried to promote parity and and that seems to have worked really well um and you've written about extensions before in the future of extensions and you talk about extensions a lot in this article and i don't know the idea i guess has always been that uh, that the rich teams could still preserve an advantage maybe by by locking their players up younger or to longer deals uh and and that they would and that that it was kind of a small market strategy that was now co-opted by big market teams and then you'd see the small market teams advantage sort of disappear in that area but and and then there's always been the idea that uh if the free agent market shrinks just because so many players sign extensions that they're not available every winter then the rich teams would just sort of shift their spending to other areas and they would uh build up their organization in some other way that small market teams couldn't afford. And and so maybe you wouldn't see such a huge difference in payroll anymore, but you would, you would see it in, in their organization somehow in their farm system and in their international presence. But as we talked about last week, it, it, and, and there won't be an international draft next season. Uh, which kind of came out after we did our last podcast about it. But if that is the way that things are moving, and of course there's already a a ceiling on how much you can spend on those players, then I guess it's getting harder and harder to, to find out where, where you could put that money so as to confer some sort of advantage. I mean, how much can you theoretically spend on a, on a scouting staff or a front office department it doesn't seem like you could have a huge spending disparity there so that you could hire much, much smarter people. And and maybe hiring the smartest scouts is not quite as important as it once was when you could spend as much money as you wanted on the international market or or had more money to spend in the amateur draft. So I guess I I kind of buy it. I, I, I don't I want to say that it won't necessarily continue, that this sort of thing is cyclical and that, I don't know, at, at some point the rules will change and big market teams will again kind of have their way. I, I guess, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing where where they could differentiate themselves as much as they might have been able to before. I, I, and then there's also the concern that that the broadcast deals are some sort of bubble uh, and that these things won't last and that 
I guess you could say maybe that's the way that it will happen, where where the small market teams that signed a bunch of big money extensions, if they're if everyone's TV deals kind of go belly up, then maybe the big market teams will be able to absorb those losses better uh, and remain competitive. I guess that's one way in which that could happen. Well, or yeah, or the t- the small market teams that don't have those right huge if they didn't make them contracts. in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Uh, I mean, first off, uh, there nobody I talk, I talk to people who work in big market front offices. I talk to people who work in small market front offices. Nobody says, "Oh yes, give me less right. money." I, you know, you need to put me on strict limits. I can't be trusted. Everybody wants more money. Everybody thinks that more money is better, and I think more money is better. Mm-hmm. I mean, there still is a there still is a correlation there. It's just it's small. The point is that it's getting smaller, or seems to be getting smaller, um, and I think that it's. Uh, I think that the the way that it would the way that it seems to work is that um, big market teams uh, can still buy an extra win. It just costs so much more than it used to that they can't buy nearly as many extra wins. And it almost always comes with a, a somewhat steeper price tag, if not in money, because the real value of money is so relative to the organization in lost opportunities. Um, and so you see the Angels, for instance. I mean, this is something that gets talked about constantly with the Angels out here, uh, because fans are not just upset that they're seeing the Angels lose, but they're upset that you know Gene Segura is going to be an All Star for the Brewers, and that Pat Corbin is nine and zero for the Diamondbacks, and that Tyler Skaggs is a top prospect, and that they look at the Angels front uh, farm system and it's ranked thirtieth. And so you get in this cycle where you have to get you have to get. A win, you know, you're 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 a big market team, and you feel like your window is is there, and your fans expect you to win every year. And uh, pursuing a win today costs more than it ever did. Like that's basically the premise: is that pursuing a win today it, it costs more for twenty, you know, for three years down the road than it ever did. And that's the disparity that small market teams have some some benefit from. Um, and partly it's the extensions, and partly it's that if you sign, if you have the, you know, the hundredth pick in the draft now, you can't really do anything but get the hundredth best player. Where a big market team used to be able to throw around their money on, uh, you know, tough sign guys like Mark Trumbo, for instance, was an eight, I think an eighteenth round pick. You could never get Mark Trumbo now for a million and a half dollars in the eighteenth round. You're basically stuck getting, you know, lousy lousy low uh low ceiling talent in, the, in with your hundredth pick so um and the third thing I, I forgot what the third thing was there's a third there's a third oh yeah the other thing is and this one is probably the least convincing to me um but everybody i talk to or I, I guess a lot of people i talk to kind of believe it that uh old players just aren't as good oh anymore. yeah i was gonna bring that up because uh, yeah i was i was on the radio uh yesterday or, or last week at some point and and the host asked me whether I thought there were lessons that could be drawn from the Angels and the Dodgers disappointing. And his theory was that we kind of got used to a historically anomalous aging curve, uh, mm-hmm. kind of in the in the PED era, um, mm-hmm. and that we expected free agents to remain productive into their mid to late 30s. And now teams haven't adjusted to the fact that players aren't aging like that anymore. Uh, and so they're signing Josh Hamilton or Pujols or whatever and and thinking that they'll be decent through their late 30s or early 40s or whatever it is. And that's just not the case anymore. Uh, 
and I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess that that could be a lesson from this. I, I am a little less yeah. convinced by it, but then. Yeah, I'd want to. I, I think I'd want to see somebody with a bit more creativity than me figure out a way to to study was, that and see whether there was an article. I guess it was a couple of months ago at BP. Remember, Zach Levine did an article on on the amount of. Well, and I guess you kind of wrote about it, just the amount of wins that came from players of certain age groups. Uh, and he yeah. wrote about how there were many fewer wins from older players, and you wrote about how there were many more wins from younger players. Yeah, uh, 27 and unders account for more than half of the wins in baseball this year and were 40% 10 years ago. So, uh, And, you know, that's a, that's a big difference. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very big difference. So the question is whether that's just... You know the the Manny Machado, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout effect. If if guys are developing sooner, combined with the Barry Bonds effect, I guess. Combined with the Barry Bonds effect, combined still further with which is an explanation I heard that teams are simply going to young players more because they're cheap, because they have more faith in them, because they need mm-hmm. them, because circumstances have have led to it, and so it might just be um, that we're that we're seeing them more, mm-hmm. if if that makes yeah. sense. So yeah, so I don't know. It's. Um, it's it's I don't know like I guess the question is if it, let's say there was a 0.2 correlation last year and so maybe something like closer to a 0.3 correlation this year which both of those would be uh, at the far far low end of what we've seen over the last 20 some years if you had to guess from like 2014 to 2016 is that is that number going to go lower or higher I mean the the free agent market is, I mean, the extension, to be honest, the extensions effect on the free agent market is really just yes. barely kicking right. in now. Uh-huh. I mean, you, you, you can't, you can sort of point to, and I do point to the guys who would have been available to the angels mm-hmm. if there hadn't been all these uh, early extensions being signed, but like in three or four years, it's going to be absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's, if that's actually what's driving this, then, then you'd expect you would it think, to go down. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I, I guess I guess I would expect that. That is, uh, I don't know. It's, it'll be interesting to to watch. Um, I mean, if the, there's also, of course, the there's also, of course, the fact that, like, you know, the, the Angels and the Dodgers, like, like even if you even if you accept this premise that the Angels, um, you know, have gotten to this this somewhat destructive cycle whereby they're having to to overpay for wins, it doesn't explain Josh Hamilton being this mm-hmm. bad. You know, I mean, even if you thought that Josh Hamilton was a bad signing or was overpaid, you expected it was going to hurt them in the fourth year and that maybe he would only be a three win player this year instead of a five win player. But it's not like anybody said, oh, yeah, those angels, they, you know, they're going to get a a sub replacement performance out of Josh Hamilton or out of Albert Pools with Albert Pools, too. They were supposed to get an MVP performance out of him this year. And it's not like I was predicting this two years ago. So, like, you have to sort of accept that. A lot of this might actually be totally unrelated to uh-huh. to the resource curse. It might just be bad luck. Yep, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Baseball's nuts, mm-hmm. man. Uh, yeah. Okay, so the the two players I wanted to ask you about are Tim Lincecum and Chris Davis. Uh, we talked before the season, I guess, about our expectations for Lincecum or or what we thought he would make as a free agent after this season. Uh, and as usual, I don't really remember what we said. Um, I remember that I had some very low number, I think, for him because I wasn't at all confident. Uh, so now we've seen a third of the season. We're a third of the way to his 
free agency. And uh, there's an interview the other day uh, with Andrew Baggerly from CSN Bay Area, uh, where he talked to Lincecum about kind of starting a second career as a as a reliever, uh, and whether he would whether he would consider that. Um, he says that the Giants would turn Lincecum into a late inning reliever in a heartbeat if they had another starting pitcher to replace him with. Um, mm. And he talks to Lincecum, and, and of course Lincecum doesn't come out and say, I'm dying to be a reliever, but he uh, he sounds, well, he says, I'm open to it. Uh, and he said, I'm sure if my career takes that turn, I'm definitely open to changes, if it's beneficial to the team I'm playing for, et cetera, et cetera. So some players who are starters and who've been successful starters kind of have to be dragged kicking and screaming to the bullpen. Uh, it doesn't sound like Lincecum will be one of those people. Um, and there are just lots of quotes from like Jeremy Affelt, who was kind of a struggling starter until he became a, an effective reliever, and Buster Posey, and people talking about how great Lincecum would be as a reliever. And they seem to think that he would just kind of become a dominant closer right away. Uh, Affelt compared him to Smoltz and uh, said that he was just he'd just kind of transition to a second successful career and and become a, a dominant late inning reliever. So um, I guess I want to revisit what we think about what he will make this this winter. Will a team uh, will a team still take a chance on him as a starter? Will a team just kind of take a flyer on him? Is he at that point? Or will someone just think that he can be an effective closer without necessarily having seen him done that, do that, uh, and, and give him closer kind of money to be a closer without having proven that he has the closer mentality or whatever it is. Um, uh, I'm of, of all things, I'm Googling Joe Pinero right now. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's a, a bit of a leap to say he's going to be a dominant closer off the bat. Yeah. I mean, he had like he had like nine pretty good innings in the preseason. Right. The idea is, that, I mean, there's a quote from him where he says, uh, out of the bullpen, your focus is different. You're not thinking about lasting. It's go until they tell you to stop. When you're starting, when you see your pitch count go up in a bad inning, that can be at the forefront of your brain. You know, it's going to limit how deep you can go. So I guess you could say it's a lack of pressing when you're relieving. Uh, and then there was uh, stuff about how how dominant he looked and how uh, Baggerly says he could dominate with his fastball and split slash change alone or go two-seamer and curve. Um, and, you know, all these people saying that he'd be well-suited for it. I mean, it does. Wait, he should. they're saying if he's a reliever, he can go strictly to two-seamer and curve? Baggerly says he could dominate with his fastball and split change alone or go yes. two seamer and curve uh-huh that that would be an interesting choice to go to two seamer and curve because his split is like by it seems to me is only pitch that works yeah, i don't know yeah i don't know either um andrew baggerly knows a whole lot more than me so uh it's weird that i would say something to dispute <laughs> him actually that's what's weird um uh yeah so uh i don't know i mean i i certainly wouldn't take that chance on him but the other thing is that well i mean say you give him say you give him something like closer money like nine million dollars mm -hmm. for a year well 
that he's probably worth that as a starter too, or has a, at least has the potential to be worth. Like I imagine that he might get that as a starter. Uh, I don't know. Like, I guess what I'm saying is I don't know that his price would be different depending on the role. Uh-huh. Do, do you? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I guess I'm wondering whether there's. Well, I mean, if he finishes the season where he is now, he will have gone two full seasons with a five-plus ERA in San Francisco. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I mean, he'll still be only 29 years old, uh, but I, I kind of have a hard time imagining a team handing him much money to start at that point. Uh, but who, yeah, I guess who else is, who, who else is going to get signed on the free agent market? Though? Uh, He's, he still looks more attractive than Halliday yes. and he probably still looks more attractive than Josh Johnson. Yeah. So I guess this is a, a resource curse candidate. Um, I would guess that if he were a starter, he, gosh, I don't, uh, I wish we, I wish we had asked Jim Bowden this beforehand. <laughs> Um, I guess, I mean, he still strikes yeah, guys out. Yeah, weird thing. He still strikes out over a batter perning. Um, uh, I would guess that he would get, um, I would guess that he would get, he, I, I would think that he could get more than Jeremy Guthrie got. So three and 35. I don't know. I think, I think, no, you I don't, don't think? think so. I, assuming he finishes the season where just as, as well or as poorly as he's pitched so far, I I don't know. I think the Guthrie deal was kind of a combination of him just coming off a really awesome run, not a long one, but a combination of that and the Royals just really wanting a starter. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think you could come off two consecutive seasons, even, even as a, a former two-time Cy Young winner coming off two consecutive seasons like this. I don't know. I, I, I guess I have a hard time imagining that happening. So, so two and ten, two two years, ten million. I well, I mean, at least that. Uh, okay, so That's we're not four, that. I low. guess. Um, okay. Yeah, I guess I would. I mean, I guess he could go for a, a one-year deal and try to either either show that he can be a dominant closer, at which point he could really get closer money, or or try to rehabilitate himself as a starter again. Uh, I mean, if he settled for a one-year deal, I, I guess I could see him getting like, I guess I could see ten million for one year from some some desperate rich team without a lot of free uh-huh. agents out there. I guess I could see that, and maybe he would be. I don't know. Maybe they would just try him as a starter, and if it doesn't work, then maybe they would try him as a, a closer so maybe it would be a team without without a stable rotation or bullpen where they could kind of slot him in either way and it would work um yeah i guess i could see that i don't know i don't see guthrie all right yeah i don't have any sense whatsoever yeah, it's well we knew it would be interesting before the season and it has remained interesting uh the other player wanted to ask you about is Chris Davis. Um, I wrote about the Orioles recently and I just kind of tossed in some, some line in there about how he was an unlikely leader for their offense. Uh, not something I really thought about. And 
some commenter kind of called me out and said, why do you consider him an unlikely leader? He was he was good last year. He was a promising prospect not long ago. Uh, and I said, you know, that is true. He, is, he was also kind of considered a, a quadruple-A player not too long ago. Um, so... I guess I'm wondering, because uh, I've been thinking about how much I buy the, the Chris Davis breakout for a while now. He's kind of, the, I guess he's kind of the closest to Jose, Jose Bautista that we've had since Jose Bautista. Um, hmm. I mean, his, his breakout sort of started last September, which was the case with, with Bautista, where when, when he did it for a full season, we all looked back and said, oh, well, it started last season. Or, you know, maybe it was just a hot September or whatever. But... Uh, so if you, I mean, it's basically half a season if you would include that September that that Davis has just destroyed the league. Uh, he has been the best hitter in the American League. I mean, as as good as uh, Miguel Cabrera has been, uh, Davis, according to our stats at least, has been better. I mean, he's slugging 754 this year, and you can kind of see differences. I mean, he's one of those guys where. I don't know, maybe we're, we're looking too hard for ways to justify the performance, but he's a guy who kind of revamped his swing, and he's, he's less of an uppercut guy now, more of a, a level swing. Uh, and he, he talked about those changes before this year, so we, we know it's not really just justifying it. Uh, and he's become more selective, and he's, he's chasing pitches outside the strike zone much less than he did last year. And uh, so, I mean, everything... About his performance seems like it's kind of real, except except he's got a crazy high BABIP. So I mean, you expect his average to come down somewhat. Um, but he now has 20 home runs and has been the best hitter in in baseball, I guess. Uh, so I don't know. Are you are you? And, it, and it's funny because I mean, he was traded for Koji Uehara a couple of years ago. Not even straight up. He was part of a package for him. Uh, and and we like Uehara a lot, and Uehara is. I awesome loved that and... trade when yeah when Texas pulled that trade <laughs> off. I was like, God, nobody's ever going to be Texas. They're too good <laughs> right. at this. Uh, and Uehara is, has he wasn't so great for Texas that year, but he has been amazing since, and he's been amazing this season. Uh, we both really liked the Red Sox acquisition of him before this year, and it, it has worked out well. Uh, so he's coming from being traded as part of a package for a reliever, and and kind of being regarded as a, a possible quadruple-A player type who would just never make enough contact to be good. And now he has been the best hitter in the American League, and people have been writing about whether it's real or not. Uh, and there are indications that it is real, but but who knows really. So uh, I don't know. I guess from today till the end of the season, where do you expect Chris Davis to rank uh, in the among American yeah. league hitters or something where I mean is he the best is he the tenth best is he not that good okay I'll answer that but first I want to ask you a question okay. which is you, you mentioned that this is a carryover from September uh-huh. let's let's say he hadn't done that in September let's say he was you know he was just same old Chris Davis last mm-hmm. September but then let's say that you take his September numbers you know the last 30 games he played and plop them right here so they were this year's this year's performance was 30 games longer uh-huh. so that was like uh, his this, his april like we were talking about this in july yeah, or exactly something. okay Ex- exactly so uh more convincing or less convincing uh in that case uh, i guess 
I don't know. I, I have. I mean, I I'm hesitant to read too much into something that happened last season. I don't I don't know whether that was before the mechanical changes or not. But um, I guess I guess less convincing, but probably. I guess it should be a little less convincing just because it's more recent, right? I think. Well, I yeah, I think that the I think the way that you described it when you were describing it, this you know when you started telling this story, mm-hmm. it in a, in a way the the fact that it was in September made it sound more convincing, like it was a stronger mm-hmm. argument because it feels like there's, uh, you know, like you we've now it, it feels like two distinct acts mm-hmm. and uh, not just him being, you know, hot or whatever. Um, it, to me, it feels somewhat more convincing that it was September, but I think that that's probably uh, that's probably wrong, especially when you consider that uh, that September is September opponents a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, uh, so my guess is that statistically, there's no real reason to to treat September more differently. But I don't know. Yeah, it feels it feels slightly more real to me because mm-hmm. uh, you know he well he did it last year and he's keeping it up. It's right. not just. You know, one big name. Anyway, uh, I would guess that Chris Davis will be the uh, uh, 16th best hitter in the American League. Uh, no, <laughs> eight. Jeez, uh, mm, uh, it's hard to say because um, I, I would guess that I, I'm going to guess that he uh, he is the 19th best hitter in the American League from this point forward. Um, but the of the of the 18 players ahead of them, some of them are just going to be guys who aren't actually as good as Tim and who are just doing, you know, who are having their own positive random fluctuation. Uh-huh. So I would get I would guess that he is both the 19th best hitter in the American League in true talent right now, and he is also going to have the 19th best true average from this point forward. But the the, the two groups of 18 ahead of them are slightly different. Yeah, it's funny that that commenter and, and that article came out on May 22nd and and the commenter pointed out uh, that if you sort of took out his first crazy series of the of the year, he wasn't actually that amazing. It wasn't it wasn't that huge a difference. Like he said, uh, uh, in the in the first uh, 40 games after the ridiculous first four games, he hit 281 with nine home runs and 25 RBI. I don't see any reason to think that isn't sustainable. And and that sounded kind of persuasive, like he had a really crazy series to start the season, and then he was just kind of Chris Davis again. But since that article came out, uh, he has hit 511, 560, uh, and slugged 1,067. Uh, with seven home runs in 45 at bats, so he kind of went crazy again after that. So, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about Mark Trumbo yesterday and how every month I seem to have a new opinion of mm-hmm. him. And the smartest thing I did was quit saying these opinions in public. <laughs> it just sort of kept them to myself. Uh, and we should probably just with any player that uh, we're tempted to reevaluate based on whatever they've done in the last. Four games, 40 games, or, you know, maybe 400 games. We should just always premise everything with, you know, I would hate, I, I, I don't really know, but if I had to guess, <laughs> we should just say everything. If I don't know, but if I had to guess, <laughs> if, I, if I was for some reason paid yeah, to guess. Which we, we uh, kind of are. We do have to guess. Which we have we to are. write about something. Yeah. So, uh, you know, with Chris Davis, I, I can tell you one thing that I'm going to have a drastically different opinion of him probably in six mm-hmm. weeks. And um, not necessarily a more correct one. 
All right. Uh, that's our first show of the week. Send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectives.com and we will get to them in a couple of days.